Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host. My name is Bill Cannon. I'm a retired sergeant from the NYPD. I did 27 years. I retired as a detective sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. With me today is another NYPD veteran, retired detective Phil Grimaldi, who worked much of his career in the 6-0 squad and retired out of the intelligence division. Phil, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Bill, and thank you for having me back. Hey, what would it be? And I forgot to say, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. There he is, straight out of People love to hear that he's he's from Brooklyn. Anyway, today we're going to discuss the uh, Maya Melete case. And she's been report, she was reported missing January 7th, uh, uh, 2021. So it's, we're coming up seven months and actually coming up on eight. If we go into August, it'll be eight months. The, uh, they just named uh, her, her husband, Larry Miliette. They, they named him a person of, of interest. And uh, I wanted to show um, a little uh, news clip on them uh, naming him a person of interest. So I'm going to, I'm going to add that to the, um, hang on one second. I'm going to add it to the, try to share it here. Okay. Is a person of he's the last person to see my sister. So um I guess it, it points to to that direction that he is a point of interest, but he is not a suspect. So I think there's a big difference there too. The sister and brother-in-law of Maya Mayate spoke to Fox 5 Thursday from their home in Riverside County. The couple have organized dozens of searches, even dedicated nearly every waking moment since January in an effort to find Maya. For them to say he's a person of interest, it doesn't really mean as much to us because, you know, anybody, again, anybody could be a person of interest. Maya disappeared from the home she shares with her husband and three young kids back in January. Since then, investigators have served dozens of search warrants, including a gun violence restraining order back in May when they confiscated all of Larry Mayette's guns. This week, a Superior Court judge agreed to unseal that document. It's expected to be released any moment. Meanwhile, there's another fight going on. For a couple of months, Maya's grandparents have sought visitation rights with Maya's three kids. A declaration from late June from the grandparents reads, it does not appear that Larry will allow for any sort of contact with our family unless it's by order of the court. We have no intent of discussing anything with the children regarding the circumstances of their mother's disappearance. It's a long I mean, long waiting. I mean, long wait for the court to even say. A lot say, of paperwork. A lot of paperwork. Courts took forever. But finally, some progress appears to be in the works. Court documents filed in Superior Court Wednesday show a child custody meeting scheduled for August 3rd. The grandparents seeking visitation rights for every other weekend and want FaceTime availability once a week. And a court clerk tells us we should get those unsealed documents before the weekend. Also, I texted Larry Mayate here this morning. I have yet to hear back. From the Hall of Justice, Jeff McAdam, Fox 5 News. So you see, uh, Bill, what, what, you know, when they talk about the verbiage of, um, of a person of interest, what, what, what are they talking about for our, for our audience? What, are they, what do they mean when they, 
when they're saying he's now a person of interest? Well, I think there's a fine line between a person of interest and a suspect, and they're trying to walk that fine line. Uh, in my interpretation of a person of interest, I mean, it's quite obvious he was the last person to see her alive. There's a lot of uh, suspicious activity, let's say, that uh, surrounded uh, her last known moments uh, uh, of being uh, alive and well. And they circle around the husband, Larry. Uh, there was allegedly an argument that took place the night that she was last seen. There were supposedly sounds of gunshots in the area uh, of the where the home is. So there's a lot of different things. And he basically um, didn't report it to the police. There was a three-day lag between the last time she was seen alive till the time the police and law enforcement became uh, aware of the investigation. So a person of interest means that somebody that they want to look at, they want to talk to, let's say, they want to either uh, eliminate them as being a suspect or uh, take them to the point of being considered a suspect. So that's what a person of interest means to me. Well, Phil, I think you explained it pretty well. I'm just going to go over a little bit some of the timeline. Uh, January 7th, that Thursday was the first day Milete went missing, was later found out through security camera footage that loud bangs sounding like gunshots rang through the neighborhood. It was also later reported that Maya made an appointment with a divorce attorney on the 7th. And Larry made statements to police and media that he and Maya had a fight that night. Maya also had previously told her family if anything happened to her, her husband Larry would be responsible. Uh, and as we know, she's a mom of three kids, um, 11, 9, and 4 years old. Um, January 8th, Larry Milete went to the beach for 12 hours. He told family members that he went to the beach with his 4-year-old son. He took the Lexus SUV that the family owns with the license plate that spells Melani. He reportedly left his phone behind when he left for the beach. Uh, January 10th, Maya's family visits the home. On Sunday, Maya's family visited the home and spoke with Larry Milete. A photo was taken of him standing in the living room. The family noted that the garage smelled like bleach and there were bath mats hanging over the trash cans drying out. Maya was officially reported missing to the Chula Vista police on that day. On the 11th, they officially started the search. That, I mean, again, we'll talk about circumstantial evidence and the fact that they had a fight. We heard the gunshots on January 7th, and no one called it into the police. It was discovered later on as per investigation when they listened to a neighbor's uh, surveillance uh, cameras. The other thing, um, the family going to the house and smelling bleach, indicative of cleaning up a crime scene. Going to the beach uh, with his four-year-old and nowhere to be found for 12 hours and leaving his cell phone home, I find that highly suspicious because, first of all, if I go anywhere and I discover that uh, I left my phone, I turn around and I go get the phone. You know, I think uh, most people that have, almost everyone has a cell phone these days. You feel that you need to have, be able to notify people and have people notify you 24-7. So even all those things that I just mentioned, even though they're circumstantial evidence, they're rather strong pieces of evidence, I feel. What do you think, Phil? Well, I think all of the things that you just laid out the things that you read, the points that you made about the cell phone, 
I, you'd have to be crazy not to consider him a person of interest. Now, just one of the things that I really wanted to expand on, my cell phone, me personally, I clip it to my belt. So I always have it with me. We've become reliant on cell phones over the last 20, 25 years. And there's so many different reasons why you'd want to have that cell phone with you, whether you wanted to look something up, a phone call, a text, uh, use it for navigation purposes. So what you said is exactly right. If you leave the house and you don't have your cell phone, we're so aware and we're so used to having it, you're going to notice it right away. And you would probably turn around and go back. So that's highly suspicious right there. That He's gone for 12 hours, uh, allegedly at the beach. Uh, he has the four-year-old with him, I believe. And there's no cell phone contact. Was it done intentionally? It seems to me that that would almost be a gimme, that it was done intentionally. Maybe so that his uh, movements couldn't be tracked. Well, um, that's exactly it. I just want you to explain to our audience that may not be so conversant in police procedure or investigative procedures that a cell phone is a walking, talking GPS device. 100%. And everywhere you travel, everywhere you stop is tracked by it hitting certain cell sites. And you can actually show where the person went and how long they stopped at a specific location. So as I said, it's a walking, talking GPS device. And that's one of the reasons it probably can be shown that he didn't bring it because he didn't want people to know where he was going or where he was. You make a great point, Bill. Um, a cell phone, whether it's being used or not. Now, if it's just turned on, it's continually pinging to a cell tower. And as you move, it gives a general location, sometimes as close as it could be a few yards away. Now, what I mean by that is if uh, the cell phone is turned on and you're moving, it will generally keep showing the location that you are in a general area. But however, if you're using the cell phone, what I mean by using, if you're making a call or you're sending a text message, it gives almost an exact location within feet. So therefore, you're not going to want to have uh, a walking GPS device on you that's going to show your location if you have some bad intentions. So, I mean, obviously, if you had bad intentions and you were going to do something uh, nefarious, you wouldn't want to have the cell phone with you that later on it could be detected where you were, what you did, what your movements were. 100%. The thing is also is early on in the investigation, uh, Larry uh, stopped cooperating with the authorities. Um, he stopped talking to the family and he hired a, an attorney very early on in the investigation. In addition, one of the big things is that he prohibits the family from seeing their, their, their cousins, their, uh, the grandparents. He doesn't let them see his three kids. So that was, uh, that was covered in that little clip that I showed that they're taking him to family court to force him to allow them to see their grandchildren and, and Maya's sister, it's their you know, uh, uh, nephews. So you could see there's not there's some turmoil here in regards he's not cooperating. Um, early on in his life, and this could ha could have something or nothing to do with it. He was arrested for a stabbing. Apparently, there's a, a um, he, when he was much younger, possibly 17, he was a gang member. So that is back. That is in his background. I'm not saying that means anything or. or makes him immediately a suspect. It just, uh, it's worth noting it. It's worth uh, talking about it. 
yeah, it shows that he's no stranger to a knife. He was involved in a stabbing, and that's definitely a propensity towards violence. Um, I think you've you've quoted many times past behavior is usually indicative of current and future behavior. So uh, it's exactly. definitely something that has to be considered. Um, you know, the fact that he stopped cooperating is usually a red flag for me and for all investigators, because if you have nothing to hide and your wife is truly missing, why wouldn't you continue to cooperate with police investigation? Even if they asked you some tough questions, if they asked you some things that you might take offense to, because if your wife is really missing, they have to eliminate you as being involved in the disappearance. So you can't take it personal. And I've said this before, if I happen to upset people during the course of an investigation, and I'm not going to get a Christmas card this year, I'm okay with that because <laughs> my goal is the victim. The, uh, the victim in this case uh, we want to find her. We want to. We want to get to the bottom of where she is. She has three young children, and uh, so him not cooperating is obviously a red flag. Now he's gone to the point where he's estranging himself from the family and and the three children. Now, at a time when these three children's mother is missing, and it's a very sensitive time for those three young kids. Wouldn't you want to encourage family to be around them, to support them, to love them, and to give hope to them that their mother might. Uh, be found. Instead, he's removed the family from these kids. That's a terrible thing. And it's, a, again, another reason why uh, I think on Thursday, uh, Lieutenant Dan Peak from the Chula Vista Police Department confirmed that Larry is indeed a person of interest. So, I mean, it's almost like you have to, yeah, knowing all these things, a, a person who doesn't know anything about uh, criminal investigation would be, you know, somebody with common sense, uh, a novice would say, yeah, th th there's something suspicious about this guy's behavior. So I think uh, naming him a person of interest is quite, you know, logical and, and the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, there, there's uh, a, a lot going on that uh, we're going to discuss with this case. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, really, when you think about uh, all, you know, all of the I can't even say uh, coincidental. It's not coincidental. All of the things that you see in regards to this investigation that we call, and uh, we call it circumstantial evidence. But circumstantial evidence can be extremely, extremely strong evidence when there's a lot of it. And for the for our um, viewers, circumstantial evidence is evidence that tends to prove a fact by proving other events or circumstances which afford a basis for reasonable inference of the occurrence of the fact at issue. I know that sounds like Latin, but really what it means, for example, what we just said, because the family went in there and smelled bleach, does that mean Larry's guilty? No, but that's a piece of circumstantial evidence. Because he went to the beach for 12 hours without his cell phone, is that does that mean he's guilty? No, it doesn't mean that, but it's circumstantial evidence. It's strong. Because they had a fight the day that she disappeared. Does that mean he did it? No, but again, a strong piece of circumstantial evidence. I'm just going to add on June 18th, um, I had, I was on Duty Ron's show and we had um, Maricris, uh, who is Maya's sister, and her husband Richard on Duty Ron's show. And I'm just going to uh, play a little bit of it and show you um, what that what they said. 
really, aside from what it's been out in the news, um, uh, I know, you know, just that, you know, that restraining order for the gun violence that's been out there and, um, you know, the, the court declaration that he did, um, that's out in the news. Um, and of course, you know, we're still doing our uh, weekly searches. Um, and, you know, we're still trying to see, you know, how we could, you know, um, be able to get a visitation for my, my mom and my dad for their grandkids. So um, that's all just, you know, it's all in the works right now. So hopefully well, we'll have it soon. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm following this case so closely. Um, you know, for me, those are some major sticking points. The not being able to see the kids for you guys is agonizing. It's not like it's not enough that your, your, your beloved sister is missing and we have no answers, right? But now holding the kids hostage, so to speak, I think that is just such a double victimization. And, and Bill, I don't know, you know, you and I spoke about this. Um, Mary Chris and Richard were very frustrated last week with the Chula Vista Police Department, and they made it clear uh, on some of their news briefings and things of that nature. They got questioned and called in. Do you do you have anything that you can tell uh, Mary Chris and Richard um, that you know would help them kind of understand maybe why they would have done something like that, Bill? Well, you know, in the homicide investigation, everyone is a suspect, and I'm not saying that you're still listed as suspects, but everyone in the investigation. You have to uh, extend a wide net for everyone. So they may have been taking their time. I would have thought that um, you should have been interviewed much sooner than uh, right now. This is what we're at five, six months, right, into this investigation. And that's part of something they call the victimology. And that's the study of the background of the victim, which includes interviews of all friends, family members, uh, you know, searching her work history, a, a, a cars she owns or financials, all of those things are important. And yes, interviewing family members is critical and very, very important. And, I, you know, I don't know what their reasoning was for not interviewing you guys sooner, but 100% you should have been interviewed, I would think, a little sooner than five months into it, you know. Right. Um, we, we thought, um, you know, we, we did we did express... Um, I mean, we know um, they did explain it to us um, that it, it does need a little bit of time, you know, on, on the investigation. Uh, that you know, we we need to get some patience, and and at times, you know, it's kind of hard to for us, the family. You know, it, it is hard to say, you know, just be patient and um, and, but we understand. Um, we we need to work with the police department. Yeah. Um, um, you know. Um. Um, Ron, just just be 100% clear. We we were, our frustration wasn't towards the CPD as much as it is for, for towards Larry um, and keeping the kids away from us. You know, we, the kids have missed so many holidays and birthdays that we usually would spend the time with them, and um, it's it's kind of like he's not cooperating at all. You know, Richard, his conduct is making him an even bigger suspect. That's right. why you know. He's not cooperating at all. He's making himself scarce. They can't even serve him with a court order. You know, you guys can't yeah. see your relatives. That's not helping him as as the suspect that he is. Right. Um, so that's that's that that was our frustration with him. It, it's just we're not you know we're not calling him a suspect or anything. We just want to 
see the kids. That's all we want to do. We just want to hang out with the kids, the, the cousins. Yeah. You know, they, they grew up together. Every weekend, they would, almost every weekend, they would, they would hang out and right. they become so close. And for them to miss three other cousins, you know, not there for the birthdays and stuff, it's it's hard. It's hard for the whole family. The little ones see it too, you know, right. so. Especially with my mom and my dad too. You know, yeah. that, not knowing where their daughter is. You know, right. and and to the point where they can't even see their three grandkids, you know, with right. you know, her daughters and, and, and son. So it is really, really hard on, on them too, seeing them like really sad. It, it amplifies the whole dynamic of this horrible situation that we're in. Now, right. you know, we all have common sense. You know, you're smart, we're smart, and, you know, we're investigators. The, I did investigations for over 20 years, Bill almost 30 years. So we, we know a dirty scene when we see one. And, you know, because we are outsiders and we're not uh, active law enforcement now, it doesn't mean that it's not still ingrained in us. So we, like Chris McDonough, he's a great, you know, friend of yours, and I know he's supporting you guys tremendously. He put me onto this case with you guys and said, hey, Ron, I know you can help these guys. I know you can help get the voice out there. And Bill and I spoke about it. It is so important, and you guys are doing such a great job of keeping May you know, Maya's name out there, keeping May's name out there. It is important that you continually talk about it. Bill, do you want to take over on that and tell them how important that is? Yeah, I mean, look, this investigation, the police know the ins and outs of it. But the public, you have to use the public to help you in an investigation like this. Because, look, say there's, a, say there's 50 people working on this case. There's thousands and thousands of people out there in the public. There's social mm -hmm. media. There's television. There's all these things you can use to your benefit. Get the word out there. Someone right. may see something. Someone may know something. At this point, five, six months in, playing secret squirrel from the law enforcement, and it's not helping you. you got to be open and let people know what's going on. Phil, what, what do you, I mean, you could see uh, the agony of the family. Uh, Mary Chris and... Uh, a husband, Richard, great people. Uh, she hasn't given up. She still goes out every weekend with groups of people searching for her sister. But it's six going on seven months right now. And, um, you know, the police, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, to uh, be misconstrued what I meant by that. The police, they are withholding stuff for very good reason. And we know that they have to move along methodically. They can't just throw everything out there. But there is a fine line between using the public and using the press and putting out too much information. Absolutely, Bill. Um, I just wanted to back up a little bit about the circumstantial evidence. I was involved in a case about five years ago, a murder case, where um, the perpetrator was convicted on just circumstantial evidence. I'm going to give a small area of the circumstantial evidence. There was videotape of the perpetrator outside the victim's home before the murder. There was videotape of him when the, when the victim came home, getting out of the vehicle he was in, hiding behind a tree, putting on a glove, uh, uh, put, pulling out the gun, and then going towards the victim. And then the actual shooting is not captured on videotape, but there's videotape of the perpetrator fleeing. 
So circumstantial evidence is this. We know that the victim was shot and killed at this specific time. Seconds before, we have the, the perpetrator on video pulling a gun. We don't have the actual shooting, but we have him fleeing the scene afterwards. So there was obviously a lot of other circumstantial evidence in that case. There was no physical evidence. There was no fingerprints. The gun wasn't recovered. Those type of things were not in that case. So in this case, there's a mountain of circumstantial evidence that's pointing us towards this guy, uh, Larry, to the husband. Now, with, with what you just said, the family is going through anguish that he's taken the posture that he's removed the children from the family and everything. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. It's really unfortunate. And I think that the fact that they were re-interviewed obviously doesn't put them as uh, an adversary to the police. A lot of times when there's initial interviews are done and then there's further uh, backup interviews, let's say uh, they said that there was a conversation between them and the husband, Larry, at a specific time. And later on, they want to tighten up a few loose ends and they call them back in and say, well, you know, you told us that the conversation took place at this time, but we pulled the phone records from the cell phone and it shows it happened at a different time. Are you sure? And they just want to, you know, they're moving forward with this investigation. Like you said, Bill, methodically, they're working with the, the district attorney's office. I believe the district attorney's office is the San, San Diego County DA. The FBI is involved and the uh, Naval, Naval Criminal Intelligence Service, NCIS, because she worked for the NCIS. So all of these agencies are working together. So now they might be doubling back a little bit to, you know, uh, uh, to tighten up a few loose ends, like a reinterview of uh, the sister and her husband. Absolutely normal. I don't think it's anything unusual. And the, the husband even said in that interview that you just showed, we don't have any frustration towards the police. We have frustration towards the husband, Larry. So it's not unusual for people to be re-interviewed even two and three and four and five times because there's going to be things that develop along the investigation route that are going to be need to, 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 you have to backtrack sometime and say, well, you're saying it happened this time. You're saying it, it happened at this time. So they want to just clarify uh, specific details because it looks like this might turn into a criminal murder investigation and they want to have all their uh, uh, I's dotted and T's crossed. So I don't think there's anything unusual about that. No, you know, a hundred percent. And uh, you know, uh, some folks had asked me uh, earlier on, is it um, possible to get a murder conviction um, without a body being recovered? 100%. And the answer to that is, is yes, it is possible. And again, I point back to circumstantial evidence. There was a famous case in New York City. It was a doctor named Bierenbaum, uh, and it happened actually in 2000. And his wife just disappeared. And... Um, the sister of his wife pushed, kept pushing like he killed her. He killed her. So they did an investigation and they found out that he was, uh, well, their, their relationship had fallen apart and they found out that he was a pilot and someone had seen him one day, put a duffel bag in the back of his trunk of his car. And he had gone to the airport uh, and transported the duffel bag from the car into the plane, and they believe he kicked it out over the Atlantic Ocean. The body, of course, was never found. He was arrested for murder and after trial was convicted, and he got 20 to life. This was in um, uh, 2000. So potentially he could 
be out by now. But that, so there was a case without a body recovered that had lots of very strong circumstantial evidence, which enabled the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to put the case together and, and get a conviction. Yeah, I, I think that was just textbook of what we're talking about regarding circumstantial evidence. There must have been eyewitness or video surveillance that showed him removing the bag from the home into the car, from the car into the plane. And then he takes off. And when he lands, the, the bag is nowhere to be seen. And she's obviously missing, disappeared. There's no contact anywhere. So all of these little bits and pieces of, of circumstantial evidence led to uh, a jury of 12 people coming to a unanimous decision on that person's guilt because there was an overwhelming amount of what we called circumstantial evidence. So that was a textbook case, Billy. That was really good that you brought that up. That really hits home exactly what we're talking about when we are bringing up and discussing circumstantial evidence. Absolutely. But I just want to mention on January 23rd, the police executed a, a search warrant on the Malete home. And um, they wouldn't reveal what they seized, but it was reported that the they took the black Lexus SUV. That was the same SUV that Larry reportedly took the day after uh, took that day that Maya after Maya was last seen to the beach that day. So I don't know forensically if they recovered anything from that uh, SUV. Those are the things that the police, the San Diego County Police, and the DA's office are keeping very close to the vest. And of course, you can understand why. Um, some evidence, of course. DNA evidence, all that type of thing would be in the SUV anyway, because it was her car. So you would expect to find her DNA in, in the SUV. But was there anything unusual? Was there any blood evidence? Uh, any, any you know, fibers or things that would have been incriminating? Any uh, gunshot residue, for example? Uh, they would. I'm sure they would go over that SUV with a fine-tooth comb. And again, we won't know about that until you know, someone is arrested in this case and they, they bring this case to, uh, to a trial. I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, about the evidence, because you noted that there was the search warrant that was conducted in January. There was two other search warrants, one in May, May 7th was the second search warrant at the home. And then July 1st, there was a third search warrant at the home. Now these Subsequent search warrants, I believe altogether they've done over 70 interviews and 52 search warrants altogether. That, that's as, as of a few days ago in this case. Now, when we talk about blood evidence, you talked about the bleach that's used, indicative used for cleaning up blood and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of people may not know, but uh, she obviously had access to the vehicle. So if a, a little speck of blood is found on a steering wheel, let's say, I'll just use that as an example, that blood can be... Uh, explained, let's say she had a paper cut or something like that. But there's also blood evidence that shows when a person bleeds out at an, uh, an alarming rate. So there's also different ways of examining blood. Now, it doesn't sound like there was an overwhelming amount of blood found in this case, but you can take a blood stain and say, no, this is not from a paper cut. This was a, a blood stain from a severe injury, uh, an over, overwhelming amount of, uh, I guess maybe it's the platelets or something in that sample of blood will show that it was from, uh, you know, a real severe injury. So they may have gone back and 
they came up with different ideas. Well, we can check this or we can check that because they may have found certain evidence that led them to look and go back for other evidence. So we're all, listen, we don't have privilege to the case folder. We're just uh, making uh, statements based on our previous experience in law enforcement. So um, the, the evidence, there's probably a lot of evidence piling up pointing towards uh, a suspect in this case. And I think it just happens to be Larry. You know, and one of the things that uh, folks that are listening, uh, you have to understand the police and the district attorney's office, they take their time because, again, when they do pull the trigger on this case, they want to have all their evidence lined up and have a very, very strong case. Because once an arrest is made, the speedy trial um, rules go into effect. And they have to be ready to go to trial within a certain period of time once an arrest is made with this. So he's not going anywhere. So they're going to take their time and not pull the trigger till they are 100% ready. When Phil was talking about the blood evidence also, crime scene technicians use a chemical called luminol. And luminol can uh, make apparent blood that is, is not seeable to the naked eye and it could raise it up. So they may have used that in the house where there was evidence of bleach trying to get rid of something, and they may have also used it inside the car to raise up potential blood evidence that may be, have been inside that car. So again, all of those things that um, good, good crime scene investigators do and the way they collect evidence, we're not, we're not privy to. But believe it or not, the DA's office, the FBI, and uh, the San Diego police, the Chula Vista police, they know all the evidence they have right now. And again, I'll use that, that dumb expression, they're getting all their ducks in a row. How are we always using ducks to describe things, right? But they get all their ducks in a row before they, um, before they proceed forward with this. We're just going to go to a short commercial break. Before you go to the break, Bill, let me just, I don't mean to interrupt. The the point you made about the blood, very, very good point, because there's uh, microscopic spots of blood that won't be seen by the naked eye that the bleach may not have done, uh, may not have caught, or he may not have seen. And also, those blood have spattering marks, would show a direction where the blood came from, which might be very important to this case. I just wanted to add that, Bill. 100%. Folks, Michael O'Keefe is a retired first grade detective, uh, and he's the author of three novels. One is called Shot to Pieces. The second is A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and he just put out a book called Burnt to the Crisp. You can order his books on Amazon.com or go on his website, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com, where he can very possibly send you a um, autographed uh, book if you're interested. Michael O'Keefe was a tremendous first grade detective. He got involved in a case in 1992 in Washington Heights where he, he, his life, he fought to the death almost with a drug dealer who was armed with a 38 caliber revolver and Michael O'Keefe shot and killed the drug dealer. And it in turn, because of misinformation, caused the Washington Heights riots. So the first book, Shot to Pieces, is almost autobiographical in that way. It tells that story, among other stories. And he, he's a great writer. And I would really encourage you um, to get his books. He's, uh, as I said, I've read all three of them. They're fantastic books. And uh, again, it's uh, you can order them on Amazon.com or his website, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. 
Folks, if you're looking to move down to a warm climate, you're tired of New York or wherever you live, and you want to buy a home or a condo or rent a, rent a uh, vacation home, Carol Waters is a realtor down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And um, she used to work at the Fitzpatrick Hotel Bar in New York City for 20 years. Her and her husband, Rob Mayen, who was a retired, well, actually was uh, NYPD, but rolled over to the fire department. They sell real estate together down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So if you're looking for a home, give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. Joe Murray, attorney at law. There's no better legal mind than Joe Murray in the New York area. Joe could be reached at jmurray-law.com. That's his website, jmurray-law.com. He, he can be emailed at joe at jmurray-law.com, joe at jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Joe is also a retired member of the NYPD. And if you're in need of legal representation, he's a tremendous victim's advocate. And there's nobody in the legal arena better than Joe in the New York area. Very well said. You know, the, the amount of warrants that have been done in this case is more uh, indicative than on a suspect than a person of interest. I'll put it that way. Okay. So sometimes, you know, the DA's office and the police department, they just use this verbiage, uh, person of interest slash suspect, you know. But if you're doing over 50 search warrants, I think that person of interest has morphed into a suspect. Yeah, that, that's a good assumption, Bill. And I think that 52 is a lot of search warrants. And I don't think that they're being done uh, frivolously. I'm sure that, uh, you know, as you know, to get a search warrant, uh, you have to present uh, specific things to the district attorney's office, and then they have to present it to a judge to get it signed off on. And, uh, you know, they're not going to give a search warrant on, on a wild goose chase. I'm sure that there's good reason for these warrants, 52 of them as uh, as of a few days ago. So uh, whatever the results of these search warrants are, it's, it's you know, the, uh, the walls are closing in on whoever's responsible for Maya being uh, disappeared or having disappeared. And don't forget, you said that, earlier that they're going to move slowly and they're going to move methodically. She may never be recovered. She may never be found. And I'm sure that, you know, on the 12 hour trip that he took, that's a big area that he could have gotten to if he is responsible for her disappearance and getting rid of her remains. So again, uh, you know, in a garbage dump uh, out in the water, buried someplace, very, very hard to find a needle in a haystack, so to speak. So they're going to definitely cross all their uh, T's and dot all their I's and move methodically on this case. So that way, if they do have to move forward with criminal charges against someone without the victim being found and recovered, they're going to do it right. 100%. Factual breakdown. Thank you so much for the $10 super chat. And you said continued love and prayers. The Maracris and Richard, I wear Maya's bracelet all the time. God bless you all. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone is looking for um, always for the best outcome to, to a case like this. These missing person cases are, are very, very difficult. Uh, we spoke about, you know, about missing person cases, how a lot of times it comes down 
to the electronics and the science of investigation. You know, we're talking about cell phones. We're talking about GPS tracking in, in vehicles. Sometimes there's GPS trackers in vehicles that we don't even know about, you know, and you, you, you call the manufacturer of a certain vehicle and you find out, oh, this has an, a built-in GPS device that, that reports where the car went to, where the car was going. So some of those things, again, we don't, we don't know about that. But uh, I mean, back in the day, there was, there was that thing they were putting out years ago. It almost sounds like old fashioned, the low jack. Remember that low jack right. thing where they would, yeah. they would track stolen vehicles. I mean, that became just obsolete faster than it was even put out there, you know, but it's there's funny so you put much that because that, that had, that was sending a continuous signal of where the car was. And then if the car was reported stolen, then they would activate to, to receive the signal. Now, you know, with all these apps and different things on the cars and stuff, you know, you could have your, uh, you can be being tracked without even realizing it or knowing it just by you downloaded an app into your phone, uh, whether it be a GPS type app and uh, different things like that. But yeah, LoJack is like antiquated now. It was like state of the art technology in the 90s. And now it's like, you know, no big deal. Yeah, I, I used to uh, see cops all like, oh, I'm going to invest in this new thing called LoJack. And it's <laughs> it came and went real quickly, you know. Hello yeah. to Peter Pranzo, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders. Great to have you here with your wife, Michella Pranzo, two of our biggest fans. Folks, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please subscribe to our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. We appreciate all of our fans that are coming in here. Um, Ed Stackpole, an old street crime guy, is is uh, in the chat. How you doing, Eddie? Uh, Gomer, GPS, very interesting. It sure is. It solves a lot of... Uh, a lot, a lot of cases out there. The Star 798, hi all uh, folks. We're really glad to have you here. It seems like um, we've been working on missing person cases um, for the last few weeks. And there's, it, as I said, it's a very, very difficult cases. In this case, you never, you don't want to say to the family that, you know, you always want to give them hope, but it's been seven months now. And based on, on the background, of this case and a lot of the circumstantial evidence. It's, it's a very, very difficult uh, case that we want to talk about. The other thing is, is that, you know, he had about 15 guns in the house and he had fought um, the district attorney's office taking those guns. In fact, they recently did seize all those guns from him. Could one of those guns be, a gun that was used in this, you know, if there, we find out there was in fact a crime, could one of those guns be the gun? Yeah, I think that that's going to be if her remains are recovered and there's a bullet uh, that's re recovered from the body. I'm sure they're going to do a ballistic comparison with all his guns. And uh, that very well could be the case that there is a uh, a match to one of his guns to, to the victim. And, uh, you know, one of the other things I wanted to just bring out there's been tremendous community support. Uh, there's been a lot of people rallying around the family. Uh, they've been doing these vigils. They, they celebrated uh, Maya's birthday um, recently. And, uh, you know, with that said, and the husband being removed from that and the children being removed from that, I mean, that says a lot all on its own. That just by itself, you know. Uh, I just feel like uh, the family 
Maya's sister, the grandparents, the community at large, they're rallying. They're keeping this uh, the attention on this case, which is a great thing. I think it's uh, definitely necessary. And, uh, you know, uh, the walls seem to be closing in on someone, and I think we all know who that is. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, one of the things also, if, if you're new to this case, they were actually high school sweethearts, and they've been married for 21 years. And I know I said before, but they have three children, 11, 9, and 4 years old. And one of the most heartbreaking things, uh, besides the fact that Maya is missing, is the fact that the grandparents can't see their grandchildren, and the aunt, um, Mar Mary Chris, can't see her, her nephews. So it's heartbroken to these people. And as we mentioned earlier there, they're taking him to family court to try to force his hand and allow them to see their grandkids and uh, Mary Chris to see her nephews. So, you know, it, it's, it's really a, a tough, tough situation. Duty, Ron, thank you so much for joining in. Uh, he's always been the most supportive guy to police off the cuff we have out there. And I appreciate all of his support and his advice in, uh, in, in, in the YouTube, uh, in, in the world of YouTube, which is a whole other world as you, as we all know. Duty Ron, good man, number one in our book. You know, uh, it's, again, this is a very difficult case. I can't imagine having a loved one missing uh, for seven months and all that they've already been through in regards to this case. Uh, and, the you know, just every weekend organizing searches. Amaya was a big hiker, so they go up into the hills searching for her. And it's just, it's it's a very, very 100% difficult situation. Hey, Ron, Bill, thank you so much for the super chat. Bill, you brought up, um, you brought up about the, uh, the petitioning probably to the family court or whatever they, uh, whatever court they use for uh, child services in, uh, in that area. Um, that's going to be important because they want to see the children. They want to make sure that the well-being of the children, that they're being cared for properly. So there may be an element that we really haven't uh, looked at that uh, maybe Child Protective Services might be checking on these children to see that they're being well-kept. I mean, the mother suddenly disappears. It's all these months, and now they're being uh, cared for by just the father. I mean, that's what it seems like, or maybe someone in his immediate family but uh, I think that that's important that they get to see these kids. These kids get to see the rest of their family, the mother's side of the family. It'll be healthy for them. And uh, they'll get insight into uh, the care of these children if there hasn't already been interdiction by uh, Child Protective Services like we talked about in the Summer's, uh, Summer Wells case. You know, So uh, I think that that's going to be a good thing to have uh, the court involved in the well-being of these children. You know, you, you sort of um, hit it on the head that uh, in the Summer Wells case, we, we had found out that they had just removed the boys, I believe, yes. uh, a couple of days ago. And for, for many days, it was just a rumor, like we couldn't confirm it. And it was, it was confirmed. And the possibility that in this case, that child welfare does remove the kids is, is a distinct possibility also. And... You know, you just can't even imagine the kids don't have their mother and then to have to go through this. Luckily, they have a, a strong family in, in their in their aunt, Mary Chris, and they also have two grandparents that love them. 
and really care for them. So in the eventuality that that does happen, at least they do have some, uh, some support. Yeah. You know, Bill, the, um, the people, uh, the law enforcement in charge in that area, uh, along with protective services for children in that area, maybe they feel comfortable that all the firearms were removed and maybe their interdiction into the home on the search warrants. Maybe they're comfortable with what they're seeing as far as the, uh, the welfare of the children. I don't know. But uh, as things start to develop and the uh, circumstantial evidence begins to pile up against this uh, the Larry, uh, I would think that, uh, you know, maybe they, they're comfortable with it. But uh, at some point, uh, the realization is going to have to come that uh, these kids may have to be removed and, and placed with. I mean, there's obviously there's her sister, there's grandparents. They could be placed with, uh, you know, close family members where it wouldn't be placing these kids in foster homes. So I don't know if uh, if they went through that, if they uh, examined that. But uh, I think that might have to be a consideration at some point. And if he is arrested as a suspect in this case, then I'm sure that the, the children are going to have to be uh, given to, uh, you know, uh, close family members. Mark Kelly, uh, he says, hi, everybody. I somehow have just turned up in this chat. Don't know how I'm from London. Well, welcome, London. We always like to have people from across the pond, right? Uh, welcome, London. Mimi, J2, thank you for, for support. Boxing MMA, Michelina Serino, thank you so much for your support. Joyce, uh, a lot of Duty Ron fans here. I'm glad you guys have uh, joined us. Uh, if you're not subscribed, please hit that uh, subscribe button on Police Off the Cuff. Uh, factual breakdown, we mentioned you before. Miss Justice, people could go there and harm the kids. Well, I hope, we really hope not, and we hope that the authorities are uh, on top of this case. Um, hoppy, hoppy, they need to remove knives too, apparently. Um, good point. I, I, yeah, it is, it is a good point. Um, Meglo, Larry is, is, has been just an absolute nightmare. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not comfortable with, with the children being in this guy's presence. I got to tell you, because as the walls close in, he's liable to do something uh, horrendous. I mean, he already might be involved in uh, this disappearance of this uh, young woman. And so I'm not comfortable with it. I would really be, I think the family, you know, maybe they are pushing for it. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I'd be pushing for uh, removal of those children. You know, I, I think that's um, a decision that has to be made between, uh, you know, child welfare the district attorney's office, Chula Vista police, you know, all the investigators involved in the case. And as they um, recover and uncover more evidence uh, and they get closer and closer to potentially making an arrest on this case, uh, that's when I think you're going to see that they'll remove the kids prior to that, I think, eventuality, which, you know, you, you, you pointed you pointed out that was a good uh, uh, point to bring up because in the Jennifer Dulos case, when the husband, Photos Dulos, was arrested, he turned around and he committed suicide before he was, uh, you know, brought to trial. So I don't know, people that are on the edge like this, I just feel like uh, I don't like those kids. That situation is kind of getting under my skin that those children in the company of uh, someone that by, might be responsible for the disappearance of their mother, you know. Miss Justice uh, 1111, 
Uh, yeah, you were talking about them taking the boys in the Summer Wells case. Well, it sort of mirrors it in this case state. The boys here haven't been taken, but it has to be uh, a decision that may be uh, forthcoming soon uh, in regards to, um, in this case, whether they remove the boys or not. And that's what we were talking about is uh, determining whether the police, child welfare, and they'll determine if that, in fact, is going to happen. Chick Eastwood in California, 15 firearms removed. Did he have permits? Must have no arrests, right? No, he was never arrested for the removal of those firearms, so he must have had permits for them. I believe he owned like four or five AR-15s, though. Um, obviously, uh, a gun, a gun buff. You know, Bill, there was some media reports that some of the, the guns, uh, some of the 15, a, a certain number of them had no serial numbers. I don't think that that's the case because if there's no serial numbers, the guns are defaced. That's an automatic charge. He would have been arrested for that. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that uh, that's 100% correct, those media reports. And then I saw in the chat uh, Scott Wagner said uh, something about uh, if they move in to arrest them, it could create a, a hostage situation with the children. 100%, Scott. I mean, I think they would try and avoid that in a different way maybe when they uh, – swoop in to do that uh, if there is going to be an arrest but uh yeah the kids being in his uh in his company is kind of like uh sticking in my side a little bit you know that was actually um a very good point by um retired detective scott wagner who's also uh a hostage negotiator there so you he, go. Underst he understands how things can escalate and turn ugly real fast and if he has um if he has firearms, that makes the, the job of the police that much more difficult. Yeah, I'm sure that they feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that they removed all the firearms. Now, even if uh, he had legal firearms, I'm sure they did a very thorough search to see if he had anything, uh, any illegal firearms. But uh, again, if the, any of those firearms were defaced, if there were no serial numbers on those firearms, that in and of itself is a felony charge which he would have been arrested on. And we didn't see anything about that. They just said that there was uh, a, uh, a restraining order, a firearms restrictive straining, uh, how'd they put it? A temporary gun violence restraining order was issued on, uh, I believe it was on May 5th. So they're probably comfortable that he's not going to be armed at the time. And doesn't mean that he can't uh, acquire another firearm uh, on the black market. So, uh, but they're probably keeping a close eye on things. You know, Phil, someone uh, in the chat called Chasing Rainbows uh, says, I'm a fan of Duty Run, uh, Duty Run, but also a big fan of Bill Cannon and Phil Grimaldi, the dream team. Oh, thank you for naming us that. Hey, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> As Phil straight out of Brooklyn. Now he's going to be called the dream team. Yeah, we really like that. Thank you so much for the- That's a nice compliment. Words. Thank you very, very yes, much. Very uh, nice. Uh, Gemma Meenan. Watching and listening from Derry, Ireland. God bless Maya and family. There was music there in the Derry air. I know that uh, Phil Coulter tune, the town I love so well. Uh, See, Derry. we're multi-talented on this show. Yeah, we can sing. We can you know, all kinds of things. Um, you know, I we, think that we, says uh, something about the professionalism that we're trying to 
display and you know to show the fans and and the the subscribers on uh, police off the cuff we're just trying to be professional and you know there's a lot of different podcasts that are out there and there's a lot of people making comments on different things that they're novice and they're, and they're amateurs but i think you could see through that and i'm not trying to knock anyone don't get me wrong i just feel that when we do uh, a podcast and a question is asked. I try to answer answer it in the most professional way. And obviously, Bill, you you've always uh, portrayed a very professional image on police off the cuff from the first day you started doing it. So I think that that's probably what's shining through with with uh, different uh, fans of the show. You know something? I I just I realize that our role here is uh, we're not going to solve the case from three thousand miles away, but we're just suggesting what some of the investigative steps should be, could be, uh, must be. And that's, that's all we're suggesting. And again, I, when I worked in the NYPD, uh, my 27 years, 16 in the detective bureau, I always thought the New York city police department gave way too much information out to the press. I and agree. to the point where sometimes it actually, could compromise the investigation. And I never liked that. But when you're told by the chief of detectives office to tell the deputy commissioner of public information, to tell them all about the case and you're ordered to do that, you know, it's a paramilitary organization and we do what we're told, even though we may disagree with it. And there were times where I fought, I fought like tooth and nail, not through, and I would call a chief and say, chief, we can't tell them that. Oh, well, so-and-so's office. But, Chief, this is what it will do if we tell them. And sometimes you could reason with them, and sometimes they would convince the person above them that it wasn't a smart thing to do. But I really admire this police department, Chula Vista, San Diego, that they're keeping it very close to the vest. Because once you pull the trigger, now no one knows anything, and you you got to have the strongest case possible because nothing was leaked out to the press or, for that matter, to his attorney, who's going to start, you know, coming up with a defense. Second one, he finds out there's going to be an arrest. Sure. Uh, Bill, I'm so glad that you brought that up because on high profile cases, which obviously this is, a lot of times things get away from the immediate investigators. Now, I said this to you before we went on the air. I always like to have myself, my team members, whoever was closely working on the case and the bosses be on the same page regarding uh, re uh, releasing information to the press. And a lot of times with high profile cases, there's people in higher positions within the law enforcement agency. I'll use the NYPD, for example. We have the deputy commissioner of public information's office and we have the chief of detectives office. So a lot of times when there's high pressure on a case, it's high profile, they make decisions on what to release and it's not the right thing to do. It should come from, let's call the squad. Let's ask the detective. Let's ask his boss. Let's ask the guys that are working on the case. Are we okay to say A, B, and C or not? And then we might say, no, we don't want you to say A, B, and C. Just say A or whatever it is the case may be. That's how uh, the integrity of the investigation is kept and I think it's very important. And you made the greatest point when you said too much gets out in the beginning. Now the guy is arrested and his attorney already has got a legal strategy that he's going to go by based on stuff that was released before there was even an arrest, you know? So uh, very important. Going back to real quick on what we do, 
we're given insight on different things that take place in these cases. And for instance, when we talked about the reinterview of the sister and her husband, Maya's sister and her husband, wasn't unusual. People might think, oh, what are they looking at them as suspects? No, we, we kind of explained what we think may have happened on that. And we're given our insight into the case. Yeah, because Maricris and her husband, Richard, they're, you know, they're staying on top of the case because they, they love her sister, Maya, who's been missing now for seven months. Of course. And, you know, they may hear something that the police don't hear, or they may hear from, from the husband, you know, and uh, it's like, that's why they have to be, and we call all that the victimology. And one, one of the things we're also talking about when we talk about not the police not tipping their hand is once the case is um, going to go to trial, if there is an arrest made, there's something called discovery. Uh, and discovery is that all the evidence the police have, including case folders, every single written document, must be turned over to the defense. And that's called uh, Rosario material. So everything a detective writes down, even if it's on a piece of scrap paper, it's supposed to be turned over to the district attorney. And the district attorney is supposed to turn it over to the defense. Now, that is part of the whole you know, fair trial situation. But they're not, again, tipping their hand early to what they have so that the defense could start making a defense right now. Yeah, I think uh, you make a great point, Bill. It's almost like when you're playing cards, you're not going to show your hand to the other person that you're playing cards with. You want to keep your cards close to the vest, as they say, and you want to keep your information close. And 100% what you said, when it goes, if there is an arrest and it's the, the, the wheels of justice start to turn, you're going to have to turn over. But at the appropriate time, let's turn over everything, all the evidence in the case. Why should we do it before we even make an arrest? And we're going to, again, we're going to uh, predate what we're going to do and, and how we're going to proceed with the case. And then they can uh, mount the legal defense based on information before there's even an arrest. So, uh, yeah, I mean... You wouldn't want to do that, and we want to keep things – you and I are of the same school, Bill, that we want to keep things close to the vest and only release what we think is, you know, appropriate to release to the media. Exactly. Anna Shipolovskaya, I hope I said that right. My Russian is not too good. Your name, last name sounds Russian. Do you know that she has legitimately helped to find kids by giving valid direction, evidence, knowledge, or intuition? Uh, are you referring – um, are you referring to us uh, finding kids by giving valid direction, evidence, or knowledge or intuition? Well, look, intuition and instincts always comes into play in investigation. And evidence, of course, is how you prove a case in court. And knowledge, of course, using knowledge and experience, it's what is the tools of a great investigator. You know, and we spoke about earlier, and I'm not going to give a, a lecture on it, but are oh, you talking about the psychic Raven? I knew that's where she was going. Oh, you know, I, I just, I've, in my, in my experience in homicide and, and I worked in Manhattan North homicide squad for 10 years. We, we never ever used a psychic. I'm not aware of any police departments. Thank you. NYPD captain for the 499 super chat. Andrew DeStefano, three, four precinct forever. And thank you, Scott Wagner, for your 499 Super Chat. I've never seen, uh, and Phil, I don't know if you have any experience with that. I don't think we've ever gone to a psychic in the NYPD. I don't know. 
I mean, I'm, I'm a student of homicide besides being a, a practitioner. And I, in the book, Practical Homicide Investigation, which at one time was considered the Bible by Vernon Gebreth, who was a retired NYPD lieutenant. Uh, he wrote the book, Practical Homicide Investigation. He said that you should never use a... Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any, uh, I don't put any weight in uh, or faith in, in psychics. It's just it never, in all my time on the police force, in, in 22 years on the police force, I, I never saw a psychic that solved the case on, on their own. And, uh, you know, like you said, the police department very rarely will, I've never seen it where they, uh, where they brought a psychic into a case, uh, you know, I don't know, just doesn't doesn't uh, jive with anything that I've ever done. So, I mean, I th I think they would uh, sort of frown upon at least the NYPD. I don't know if other departments use it. I don't know if there's any record of any success relative to using a medium or a psychic. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's that's a good question. I the, the 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 harm it could do is that everything has to be checked out. So. If, the psychic predicts A, B, C, and D, you have to check that out. So it could be, uh, cause a lot of work that unnecessary work to be done. I'll put it that way. And, uh, if I was in a case and I, we had absolutely nothing zero and a psychic called and said, well, why don't you, of course I would go check it out. Of course, a hundred percent. But I just, from previous experience have never heard of, or, you know, worked with psychics where they said, you know, go look in this area and the body was found or anything like that. So I'm not knocking psychics. You know, there might be something to it with some of them. I think there's a lot of fakes and phonies out there. That, I mean, they've been proven to be uh, phonies and fakes. So, uh, but uh, there might be something to psychic ability. I'm not knocking it, but uh, I just never had the occasion to have positive results from it. No, I, I sort of agree. Um, you know, folks, we're, we've been at this for about an hour and five minutes. I think we're going to uh, wow. just just wish uh, there'd be a positive outcome to this case. Uh, we pray for Maya Malete and uh, her sister, Mary Chris, and her husband, Richard, and the whole family. Uh, they must have been going through, you are going through hell with this case, and it's been lasting a long time. Uh you know, in our experience um, with this with this case, I think it's pointing in the right direction. And the Chula Vista Police, the San Diego Police, the FBI, everyone involved in this investigation is, uh, I'm sure, working tirelessly to bring this case to a, a, a positive conclusion. Um, with that said, all we can do is 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 wish uh, wish you guys the best. Bill, any last words? Yes. My heart goes out to those three children. I mean, I said this before. I'm going to repeat it. Uh, if the father is, in fact, responsible for her disappearance and he is eventually arrested, they're not going to only lose their mother. They're going to lose their father as well. So my heart really goes out to those kids. I pray for them. I pray for her. I pray for the safe return, although it's, like we said earlier, seven months and it doesn't look like that's going to be. Um, again, hats off to the uh, investigators from the FBI, the CIS and the Chula Vista police department. I know that, and the San Diego County, uh, district attorney's office, they're 
working hard on this. They're trying to bring justice for Maya and for her children and for the rest of the family. So uh, let's just have some positive thoughts and, and prayers for those kids. And uh, that's just about it. And Duty Ron says, let's bring Maya home. Yeah, that's what we yeah, pray for. Exactly. Uh, we absolutely pray for that. Um, yeah. And prayers for the family and uh, all you folks in the live chat. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. On behalf of myself and my partner, Phil Grimaldi, thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Stay safe, everybody.